Amen. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. Well, good morning, church. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We have been in uh, Matthew chapter 9 for about a month, a couple more weeks. <clears throat> Be here this morning and, and next week. While you're flipping there, I just want to um, share a couple things with you. Um, first off, if you haven't connected to a small group or you're not in a small group, um, we, we said at the beginning, but if you'll go to the church website and click on connect and, uh, and click on small groups, all the updated new small groups, a lot of uh, you are connected to small groups, but if you're still looking for one, all that information is on the website. Daniel got that up this week. And so as we look at launching, relaunching small groups, um, starting about that, and it's an opportunity um, for us to live out in a lot of ways what we have been studying here in, in Matthew chapter 9. Um, we, we've been looking at uh, also with, with the hurricane coming uh, came through, and, and uh, this past week, Michael Trest and I made a run to Tahoma, Louisiana. Uh, our county, several churches in our county are collecting disaster relief items. You can drop them off at, at Trinity Baptist Church on Highway 15, and later this week, they're going to take a big trailer down there. And so we've been looking at seeing needs, meeting needs, and it's very important for small groups because it allows us to A, have community within the body outside the Sunday morning gathering, but it allows us to be kind of the front lines of mission in our communities and in our neighborhoods, and it allows us to be able to see needs and, and meet needs um, together. Matthew chapter 9, right before we get there, um, just to share a couple things this week, I just want to let you know that when Justin um, stands up on, on a Sunday morning and said, hey, Luke's here, and I promise I don't make up names of some of those churches, like they're really, they're really there, I promise. Um, but, but last Sunday, I was at Centerville Baptist Church, and, and the Lord moved, and, and uh, anyway, what I, what I say is when when I go somewhere, many times churches thank me for coming, and, and I always am quick to remind them, Crosspoint is sharing me with churches, and so they see it as you serving their church, and so you get to share in on that. Um, this past Tuesday night, I was, I was preaching at Blue Mountain College up in uh, north of Tupelo, and um, some of you knew that I was up there, and uh, the Lord really moved. It's pretty awesome to see college students um, in an auditorium. Uh, when the meeting's over, just to sit in like somber solitude and seek God for their life and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We had that um, this past week, probably 30 to 40 students after the, the, the service was over just sat. Some were on their knees, some were just seated just for a, a long time seeking God. And so I share that with you to let you know um, that we, we all share in that. So, and it's a reminder that although we may not see it in everyday life, remember what Jesus said when we started this series, my father is working and I am working up to this moment. God is at work. Matthew chapter nine, we'll reread these four verses that we've been looking at for several weeks. And just a reminder, if you haven't popped back this week and looked, the context is Jesus at work. Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is exercising authority over disease, over nature, over demons. He calls Matthew to himself. He answers questions from the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He calms a storm. Jesus is at work. And when Jesus is at work, ultimately, nothing can stand in his way. And that is what I want us to think about this morning is that we shift in this series now. We've been seeing Jesus at work. We've been seeing God at work. We've been, uh, just in the first week of, of this series, 
Took us through the whole Bible and we see that the Bible is about God's mission for God's glory. The first two chapters of the Bible, God with man and woman in fellowship. The last two chapters of the Bible are God with us in fellowship. And remember the whole chunk in between from Genesis to the very end of Revelation is God's plan and God's work to bring us back into fellowship with himself. Matthew chapter nine, let's read verse 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The last four weeks, we have, this word has popped up in our minds and before, see, see God at work. What we saw in verse 35 is that we saw that Jesus was sent by the Father. That when Jesus came, he was a missionary. And I would remind you of a message that we preached a few weeks back. It helps us so much to understand that the Son of God did the great majority or exclusively all of his ministry work in about the land size of Laurel to Gulfport. That helps me out. Because what that means is, Jesus wasn't jumping on airplanes, he wasn't, I mean, the, the Apostle Paul had a far vast geographical larger ministry than Jesus did, right? But Christ is our example. And so we saw how Jesus was sent by the Father, then Justin walked us through the rest of verse 35, how Jesus saw needs and he met needs. How he saw spiritual needs and he met spiritual needs. How he saw physical needs and he met physical needs. And what did we learn? That if we love without bringing truth, we're really not loving. But yet if we share truth and we don't recognize needs, we're not loving either. So it's not one or the other, it is both. When Jesus came, he brought grace and truth. And then last week, we got into verse 36, give us credit, took us four weeks to get through three verses, okay? Jesus saw the crowds and what did he feel? You remember there was a gut punch. It was like somebody reached in and pulled on his insides. He was moved because he saw how people were. So for four weeks, we've been in this C, C, C. Well, this morning we shift, and today and next week, we want to put this word in front of you, join. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A few years back, I had taken a, a team to Asia and we were in Northeast India along um, really where four countries meet. China comes in from the north. We were in India. Nepal comes in from the northwest. Bangladesh comes in from the south. And the small kingdom of Bhutan comes in from the northeast. And we were kind of in this small strip of land. Josh Nowell was with me. And uh, we had a medical team. And we set up at a school. And what was incredible was we rolled into that school. I don't know, bro, if you remember that. But it was October. And there were wheat fields that were literally white. And what was amazing was we pulled up and right behind this school complex, we were having this, um, this medical camp, there were all these fields and they were just white, white, white. 
the, where the, the tip of the, the stalk was, was, was ripe and, and uh, everything that needed to be harvested, it was the time for the harvest. And I remember all day long, that specific camp, there were people everywhere. You remember that. And Josh was my gospel dude. I know I'm a preacher, but like I was fire extinguisher because I was kind of in charge that day. And so I stuck Josh Nowell. And by the way, he, he's not an ordained minister, right? He's just an ordinary layperson. You're, you're an extraordinary, bro. Sorry to cut you down like that. But anyway, you, you get it. He's a, he's a businessman. He, you know, we, we know what he does with his life. Sometimes we don't, but we know you have a lot of children. We appreciate that, Josh. Um, but, but he was in this room, and what would happen is people would see the doctors. And we had doctors and nurses and we had a place where, where they could get glasses because many of them couldn't afford glasses or afford to go to eye doctor. And so they would go through and see the eye doctor and then they would go into a room and Josh would stand there and he would say, hey, take your medicine and da-da-da-da-da, but here's some real medicine and he'd share the gospel. He got to the point, he shared the gospel so much that day, like his voice was gone at the end of the day. He was like, Jesus loves you so much. You know, he, he was gone. It was, it was, it was, but I remember particularly one man, an old man, he came out of that room and he grabbed me because he had seen me kind of just running around and he, he figured that I was one of the dudes in charge. And on his face was a brand new pair of eyeglasses. And they may have been like purple or pink or like girly blue. He didn't care. He could see. But he had just left the room where Josh had shared the gospel, just the simple gospel. The Son of God came to die for sinners in their place. And he was buried and he had rose again and he had conquered death, hell, sin in the grave. And this old man grabbed me and he began to kiss me profusely on both sides of my face. When that happens as an American, you're like, yeah, I'd been in India a lot, so I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. But he was, he was just grabbing my hands and just, just saying over and over again, how thankful he was because he could see, but we hope through the sharing of the gospel he could see. And you see, this morning, we move from seeing God at work, something that has happened forever, to this invitation to join God in his work. That's the transition in the text. Jesus has been modeling for two chapters. Demons, cast out, storm, chill, Answer your questions. Matthew, leave that life and follow me. And so Jesus has been demonstrating, but here when we get to 37 and 38, we hear the call of Christ to not just see him at work, we hear the call of Christ to join him in this work. Big truth number one I want you to see is that the time for salvation has arrived, but it will not last forever. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. As Jesus has been meeting needs and he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom, when he turns it to his disciples, he begins to speak because if you look back in verse 36, he compared the crowds to sheep without a shepherd. Justin unpacked that for us last week, that the religious leaders in Galilee were not doing their job. The legalistic and self-righteous culture of 
Palestine and, and Judea and, and the bottom at the mothership in Jerusalem where people were not worshiping God in spirit and truth. They were worshiping God in, in, or in the name of that, doing legalistic activity, imposing burdens on people. And Jesus says, man, the religious system has failed these people. The synagogues have failed these people. The ministers have failed these people. The, the rabbis and the priests have failed these people. And Jesus says it's sheep without a shepherd, but when he transitions to verse 37, he changes agricultural genre, but he changes from sheep scattered and helpless to stalks of wheat that are ready to be harvested. Now, because of the positivity and the ministry of Jesus and what he's been doing, I want us to interpret this first as what this means is, first and foremost, that there is a harvest, but it's a harvest of salvation. So a harvest of salvation is available. That, that's that's what, the way that we interpret what Jesus is saying in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful. So look out and see that stuff is ready. As we rolled up to that school and we saw harvest fields behind it, and then everybody came out of the woodwork to see a doctor, to get eyeglasses, to, to get some medicine to help with worms in their gut. So it was that all of that was great, but ultimately we knew they didn't realize it, but they were ready to be harvested spiritually. That as Josh and others shared the gospel, guess what? The Spirit of God took the Word of God and worked in their heart. And praise God, even that day, people were brought to repentance or their heart was begun to be tilled up so that they would be open to the gospel when pastors and workers came in in the days to come. So it is, you've got to realize the reason that God invites you to join him in his work is because right now, all around us, it is possible for people to be saved. Do we, do we, do we forget that sometimes? And we, we enjoy the internal blessings of being a part of the people of God. Here's the challenge for me, and I'm not even pointing when I say this because all five fingers are going back at me. Do I desire for other people to experience what I experience in Christ? Or do I just want to chill and soak it in and take it up and just say, man, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I'm glad I'm taken care of. You know, they sometimes within us can, an internal cruise button can hit. In the 1700s, when William Carey wanted to take the gospel to those in the Eastern Hemisphere that had never heard of Christ, the ultra-hyper-Calvinistic, fatalistic view had settled into their missionary societies or, or their, their churches, and Carey stood up and said, we need to go to the heathen. They need to be saved. And one man stood up and said, Carey, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll save the heathen, and he doesn't need you, or he doesn't want you to do that. Carey didn't listen to that. William Carey boarded a ship, went to India, and stayed for a long time, and he's buried there. Because he didn't want other people to not experience what he had experienced in Christ. Are you thankful right now that no matter anywhere on this earth, no matter who they are, where they are, what their past is like, how maybe un undeserving they feel that the gospel of Christ can be proclaimed anywhere on this earth, and by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, people can be saved. Isn't that incredible? Let me just slip this in. There may be some rabbit trails this morning. Let me just slip this in. A couple weeks ago, I was in Jackson, Mississippi on a Friday. And I walked in a church. 
at nine o'clock in the morning because we were having visitation at 10 and a funeral at 11 for one of my buddies who's a pastor. We were about to bury his six-year-old son, brain tumor. He leaned up to me. You know what he said? He said, Joel Osteen can't help me today. Positivity can't help me today. Self-help can't help me today. Prosperity gospel can't help me today. The gospel can help me today. And I'm so thankful that this message that we preach can be preached to anyone and anywhere in any social class and any place on this earth and through faith and repentance, they can know God. That is what Jesus is doing here. The harvest is plentiful. Man, people are ready. They might not even know it. Isn't that awesome how God puts people in your life and you become aware of their spiritual need? They don't even know their spiritual need, but God's kind of giving you the inside track on what's going on. People do not come into our lives randomly. I hope you know that. It's hard for me. The morning after I was in Mobile last night and watched that beat down, to look at people that were on the opposing team and say, well, you know, divide people based off what team they cheer for or what party they vote for or where they are in society. There's only two groups of people, those in Christ and those outside of Christ. And those outside of Christ, here it is. A harvest of salvation is possible, but also based off the way that scripture teaches about a harvest, we need to know this, that a harvest of judgment is coming. This is the main way are reference to harvest in the scripture. Jesus said that at the end of the age, he will gather his people, but the unrighteous will be gathered and they'll be thrown into the place of fire. And in that place is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ talked about this in Matthew 13. He talked about this in Matthew 24. In Revelation, it talks about final judgment and it's referred to as a harvest. And so, yes, the time for salvation is now, it has arrived, but it's not going to last forever. And so judgment's coming. And why we need to hearken on this truth of being sent and joining God, not just seeing God at work, but joining him in his work, because this day of grace will not last forever. And that's why in the scripture, that when Jesus comes back, the second coming did you know that the second coming is talked about more in the New Testament than the first? And the reason for that is every generation of Christians can honestly believe based off the teaching of scripture that he might come back in their lifetime. Now, we're not gonna read books about 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. They, there was actually a book that said that. And we're still here. We don't concern ourselves with how is it all gonna pan out or how's it all going to work out because you know what the father has those things committed to his authority we're supposed to be his witnesses in jerusalem and judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth he's going to come back and we await his coming and we look for his coming but the reason we join him in his work is because he is coming and when he comes guess what judgment will come now is the time to believe the harvest is plentiful people can be saved but it's not going to last forever. I want to move on to what Jesus says, the second part of this verse. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Big truth number two this morning, I want you to see. We got to get this. God is not in desperate need of others to help him in his mission. And the reason I want to bring that to your attention is that when we look in verse 37, it's almost as if Jesus 
We can interpret it this way. Look at all of these people that have needs. Look at all these people that need to be saved. Look at all of these people that are going to face judgment. But there's nobody to help God. And it is kind of overwhelming when we think about the state of the world right now. Let me bring this to your attention. There's a great website. It's called joshuaproject.net. And it talks about what we call unreached people groups. And basically an unreached people group is a people group that doesn't have the resources within itself to convert itself. And even within under that, we have what's called an unengaged people group. Many of these don't have a copy of scripture in their language. There's, there's maybe a thousand or less believers in their entire people group. Listen to these stats. Right now on planet earth, right now, this very moment, there's 7.84 billion people. There are 17,406 people groups spread out through countries. Of those 17,406 people groups, there are 7,402 of them that we would consider unreached. Roughly 42.5% of the people on this earth right now are unreached. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that they're not only that they don't know Christ, it's that they, don't have, they, they haven't heard of Christ. America is obviously considered a rich nation. Our people groups, we don't think of ourselves a lot of times as people groups, but we're, we're a people group. And, and we're considered reached. That doesn't mean everybody in our reached group is saved, right? Obviously. But we have access to the gospel. Right now on planet Earth, there's over 3 billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus. And it's overwhelming. And if you look at this verse and you can say, the harvest is plentiful, billions of people, but the laborers are few. The humanistic side, the self-centered side can say, wow, Jesus is saying this because he needs our help. Let me just tell you, this verse is not teaching that. This quote from A.W. Tozer struck me, and I want to honor my wife in front of all of you because I left it on my printer this morning, and she brought it, and she was late this morning because of that. So thank you, Lauren, for serving me. Listen to this quote by Tozer. Almighty God, because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. We commonly represent God as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his listeners, not only for the heathen, but also pity for the God who has tried so hard to save the heathen and has failed for one of support. Tozer says, I fear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Man, that's hot. 
How many times do we think of world evangelization or the Great Commission as we are bailing God out because God put forth this benevolent promise, oh, I love the world, but God doesn't have the guns to go out and save the world, right? This is what Tozer says. The truth is, is that God is not greater because we exist, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination Probably the hardest thought of our, all of our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. A God who must be defended is one who can help us only while someone is helping him. Such a God could not command the respect of intelligent men. He could only excite their pity. But in the meanwhile, the truth is our inner fulfillment lies in loving obedience to the commandments of Christ. It is God who works in you. God needs no one, but when faith is present, he works through anyone. Jesus is not saying, man, my father loves the world and he sent me to die for the world and man, I need your help for the world to be saved. That is not what the text is teaching. And I just wanted to stop here and mention that because if we think that we exist as the church to help God and get God out of a precarious situation, we're not being faithful to the truth of God and we can't be faithful to the mission of God. That's not what he's saying. So, so what is he saying here? Third big truth this morning. God invites us to join him as he saves people from every tongue, tribe, and people group. 37 is not saying, God's in desperate need of you. God's in desperate need of you. God needs people, he needs volunteers, and, and, and we, we need to help God. No, this is what it's saying. God is inviting you to join him in what he is going to do and what he could do all by himself. But he has graciously opened up and say, be a part of my plans, be a part of my purposes, be a part of what I'm doing in the world. It's completely different. One is that we're helping God out. The other is we are privileged to work with God in seeing his purposes fulfilled. If you go to the back of the book, and I'm thankful we already have the finished story, right? You know, aren't you thankful we can read the back of the book and see that Jesus is king? Don't be scared of the book of Revelation. Sum it up in two words. Jesus wins, okay? That's, that's, what, it, that's what it is. Like he wins. Satan loses. Evil's crushed. Behold, I make all things new. You know what we have in the book of Revelation? Such a beautiful, beautiful, amazing truth. We have a multitude of people that no one can count, and they're from every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation. And this isn't some like ecumenical mountaintop experience. Everybody just kind of went up their own way. We kind of went up this side and we went up this side and this world religion, that world religion and this personality cult and that. No, all these people are standing before the throne of God and this is what they are saying. Salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb, exclusive the only reason they're before the throne of God is because they've been saved by Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. And so all these people, most of which are not like us, they don't look like us. They don't know what a cheeseburger is. One, one great Saturday on a beach in India. I tried to teach Bible college students how to play American football. Uh, the concept of line of scrimmage does not exist in the Eastern mind. It does not. 
They don't have anything to identify with us. We don't have anything to identify with them except this. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And so when we read that in the back of the book, what we find out is, is that that will happen. Hadn't happened yet, but it will happen. And because it's a fact, and because it's in the future, what that tells us is that this is what God is after. Can I ask you something this morning? Is there anything that God has purposed in his heart and his mind that has not come to pass, is not coming to pass, or will not come to pass? No. He does all things to the counsel of his will, Ephesians says. So what this means is, is that God is actively working now to save people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. So here's the thing. If we find an unreached people group in the world and God directs us to go serve in that group or he lays something on your heart to go work, guess what this means? If nobody in that people group has come to faith in Jesus, that's the spot to go, man. Because someone will come to Christ. Probably in the New Testament why the Apostle Paul went to tough cities like Corinth. Not because it was a nice place to live, but because of the darkness. Dude, we got to go there. Somebody's got to get saved. There will be a church there. Now, you got to stick around for 50 years after and work out all the you know, bumps and, and, and roadblocks and all the junk that you have to deal with. But the point is, Paul went to some of the worst places because he believed that it was in those places that he was guaranteed a harvest. Because God is working all of these things. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Let me add one more thing under this point. It's almost as if Christ is saying, the laborers are few. It's not, a, it's not just a comment of very few people are partnering with God. Very few people are working with God. But it's almost like this. People don't realize what they're missing when they don't partner with God. You, you mean to tell me that you got one life? It's all you got. No mulligan, no reset. Teenagers, no respawn. I don't even know what that means. Just sounded cool. No do-overs. No reincarnation. You get one life. One life. Why would we not join with God in seeing his eternal purposes accomplished in our life? How many people aren't partnering with God? Change your vocabulary. I'm trying to change mine. We are not working for Jesus. We are not working for God. We are working with Jesus and we are working with God. Change the preposition. It's his work. He's inviting us to join in. So, so how do we respond? I'm going to give you a few points here. What, what is he inviting us to? The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Go to verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What's the invitation? I think invitation first is see the situation. See the situation. What was Jesus looking at? He was looking at people that were scattered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. On the same hand, they were, in his language, a harvest waiting to be brought in. And what's the situation? Is that God's actively at work, and yet there are not that many people that want to join God in his work. This is why we're told to take up our cross daily. 
Because especially for those of us here in America, the will of God and the purposes of God will always be in a lot of times contrasted with freedom, my kingdom, my empire, my life, my rights. Isn't that amazing? That, that the freest country in the world is often the country that is most enslaved to things that really don't matter. Point to me. The news out of Afghanistan, how earlier this week some believers were martyred. It also seems sometimes that in the toughest places on earth where it matters the most and counts the most cost to be a Christian, that's where the church spreads the most. Because the blood of the martyrs has always been the water for the gospel. Water for gospel seed. We see that in India. See that in Asia. And broke my heart to listen to a pastor in Afghanistan a couple weeks ago with his face, the skies, and voice changed a little bit. His heart broken because for the last 20 years, they've been able to plant churches and now just to see it all just blow up. But what you hear at the end of it, we trust our sovereign God. See the situation. Do, do we see the people we live beside? Do we see the people we go to work with? Do we see the people we go to school with? Do we pick up our eyes just out of our community? Or are, we, are we looking at what's happening in the nations? See the situation. That's what Jesus did. Isn't it amazing here that the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. This is the situation. God's at work. Not that many people are partnering with him. You would think that the next word that would come would be like, go, do, active, work. But it's not, right? Verse 38, what are we supposed to do? The harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Therefore, pray. Isn't that good? We see the situation, but we pray, secondly, in faith. We pray in faith. What's our response to the situation? There comes a time to go, but the first thing here in the text is to pray. Why do you pray? Because what prayer does in regard to the mission of God, prayer sinks your heart to God's heart. Prayer sinks your plans to God's plans. Prayer determines not only where to go, prayer determines what to do when you get there. Because what happens is, it's one thing if I just kind of start off on my own just agenda and plan, and I'm going to do this, and I want 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 to do it, it's in the name of Jesus. What happens is, if you'll notice towards the end of this verse, it says that he's going to send out laborers into his harvest. Many times it's our harvest, my plans, my ministry, my agenda, what I want to do. And oftentimes we get frustrated with what we're doing in the name of Jesus because Jesus never told us to do it. <laughs> Look great on paper, but you were only half awake sipping on a cup of coffee when it came to your mind. You should have pondered a little longer, right? That's what happened to me before. Serving in New Orleans, Louisiana, somebody wanted to do this event. It was the dumbest idea in the world, but it sounded cool, so we did it. And it was like, it just blew up in our face. Like real-time dumpster fire. There it is. I'm not outside the dumper watching it burn. I'm inside the dumper, dumpster getting burned by the fire. In the name of Jesus, pray earnestly. Because it's in prayer where God starts filtering out selfishness. He starts, oh, that's not a good plan. Like I had, a, I had, a, I had a, some friends up in Pennsylvania. They wanted to start a youth center in, in Palestine. 
in this, in this former city of Ashkelon, if you studied the Old Testament, it was like a city of the Philistines. And they thought it was a great idea. And then one day one of them was reading the Old Testament about future prophecy and they're like, Ashkelon will be destroyed and burned up. And they're like, ah, we probably shouldn't go there and and start a work there. You know what I mean? Isn't it amazing that when we really present our plans before God, God filters them and sanctifies them and directs them into where they should go? That's why we pray in faith, we get the heart of God. But third, what's the invitation? It's to submit in obedience. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, here it is, to send out laborers. The word send out there in the Greek is ekbalo. It's not like, here you go, let's gently set you down. I've told you this before, so thankful that Dylan Stockstill is a functioning adult because I dropped him when he was four months old, okay? So I don't hold your babies. Love them from a distance. I dropped him. This is not like pick the baby up, set the baby down. This word ekbalo literally is to throw out, cast out, sling out in, with like violence. It, it's like Jesus chunking his people everywhere. Now sometimes he has to do that because we won't budge, right? Heard that sometimes God, God weighed on me and God weighed on me and I said no and no and it's finally like, I didn't have a choice, God did it. You know what I'm talking about? But it's this idea that, that Christ is flinging us, throwing us, sending us, and, it, and, and you have to submit in obedience. That, that Jesus is putting us where he desires for us to be. Can I just share this with you? I never thought that I would spend a great majority of the last decade of my life in other countries. I wanted to be kind of the, the youth camp speaker guy that was you know, flying around and driving around and being on the road 200, 250 days of the year. That was what I wanted to be. And the Lord's like, you're not going to do that. Okay, what am I going to do? You're going to go learn to eat with your hand and be able to speak five words in 15 languages and sleep on the floor and hike in the Himalayas. That's what, that's what, that's what I want you to do. Okay? Never, never thought I would be... Here, serving with Justin and the other guys. Didn't think that. Because what's amazing is, is that when we submit our lives, we not only find ourselves in maybe an uncomfortable place, but when we submit our lives, we find ourselves in the most secure place because we're doing what Jesus has called us to do. Now, it's not easy. My five foot three firecracker redheaded mother from Shibuta, Mississippi, struggled with me going overseas for a long time. And one day at the airport, she looked at me. She said, Luke, you know what God's taught me? I said, what? She said, Luke Johnson, you're immortal until God's finished with you so I can sleep at night when you're overseas. And so while it's maybe the most physically insecure place in the world to submit in obedience and allow Jesus to fling us out, ultimately it's in the most secure place because we're doing exactly what he wants us to do, where he wants us to do it. There's one more response here. It's This last phrase, send out laborers into his harvest. In that word, his, that's a game changer. You know why? Because what it becomes is, is him taking control of the situation. Like it's up to him to do the work. The end game, the end goal is is rest in his hands. I can't can't bring people to faith. I can go share the gospel, but, but ultimately I can't do that. Michael Tress and I were 
in a carport in Houma, Louisiana on Friday. And we were like exhausted. Like we were, this guy, we, we, we went down there. Michael had a, a friend that was in need. We took some supplies. And then that had, they had a family member that, that had a tree. And they said, they said, it's a little tree. We got over there. And yeah, it wasn't a, a little tree. And I had my 18-inch steel saw, and I needed probably about a 22-inch to, 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 to get through it. So, you know, I was in places uh, on that tree, resting on top of a shed, uh, doing dumb things, okay? A ladder was involved. A chainsaw was involved. We didn't have rope, so bungee cords were involved. We, got, we did what we needed to do. It wasn't that stupid, okay? It was partly stupid. We were in the carport, getting ready to leave, and I'm just talking about just, just, just people, man. People showing up because this was their neighbor. They're just standing there. Um, one dude was hauling limbs in flip-flops without a shirt on. It was just good South Louisiana people. It was awesome. Michael and I are standing there, and in the midst of just, I, I, was, I needed, I was about to pass out. And I was, my saw was really hot and I was even hotter. It was, it was, anyway, in the midst of that, between gasps of air, Michael and I just say, we'll share the gospel. Now I was just kind of looking around and in my mind, I was like, this is the stupidest thing ever. They're not listening to me, you know? This little girl coming out of the house, like telling me what her doll's name is, you know, interrupting. Fine, awesome. That's your doll's name? That's great. In between that, just sharing the gospel. And in one sense, feeling completely helpless, knowing that these people were thankful for my chainsaw, but they probably didn't want me to talk about sin and death and resurrection. And at the same time, me and Michael walking away from that, wholly confident that Jesus may have used a few words from a worn out chainsaw people, that might stir their heart and bring them to Christ. You see, th th that's where we find ourselves. We are unable to do the end game, but we look to and are used by the one who is working all things together for his good and people's salvation. So, so we got a choice to make this morning. Here it is. This is what I think this text is ultimately teaching us. Will, will our life count for God's glory and God's mission? Or will we waste our life? The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. But pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's the question. You get one life. Is it going to be used to partner with God? to see his glory and his mission accomplished through your life? Because God's going to do his work, but just sometimes he finds in us unwilling vessels, unwilling people, so he's just going to go to somebody else. It's like you picking up a pen. You use that pen, and guess what? That pen's out of ink anymore. You just don't look at that pen and be like, oh, beloved pen, uh, how often I have wanted to use thee continually. He's like, grab another, right? I'm not saying that's the way that the heart of God is, but what I am saying is if, if you find yourself unusable, God will move on to the next place, to the next church, to the next person, because he's going to accomplish his work. You know what's awesome? Is if that we're a pen out of ink and we bring ourselves before the Lord, he'll fill us fresh again and use us again. 
Do you know that this morning? If you've been sitting on the sidelines and God confronts you this morning, guess what? He wants to fill you again afresh with his spirit. He wants to burden your heart for his purposes. He wants to invigorate you with fresh faith because he wants your life to count. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. We never know when we partner with God what he's going to do. Show you a picture of a guy as we close this morning. Probably never heard of this dude. His name's Edward Kimball. Here he is. <clears throat> Edward Kimball. Anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? Anybody? Didn't think so. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in 1854 to eighth and ninth grade boys. Blessed is he among all men, right? And he was concerned personally for each one of his young men in his Sunday school class to come to know Christ. There was particularly one kid in his Sunday school class named Dwight. And Dwight worked at a shoe store. And he felt compelled to go share the gospel with Dwight. So Kimball made time on a Friday or earlier in the week, I think it was like a Monday or Tuesday, and he went to this shoe store, and as he began to walk in the shoe store, all these thoughts came, and he said, I, I, can't, I can't go in and share with this kid at work, I'll embarrass him, he'll never come back, and all, you know, all these excuses. So, so Kimball turned around, and he, he went to walk away. And he said as he was walking down the sidewalk, the Spirit of God grabbed him and, and you know, just kind of turned him back. You know, no, go share the gospel. So he, Kimball went, and he said, I went straight to the back of the store, I walked up to Dwight, who was putting shoes on the rack, and basically just without any introduction said, young man, when will you give yourself to Jesus Christ? He said, I then proceeded to share, in his words, what was like the worst presentation of the gospel ever. Stumbling over his words, he left and he said, I have old, uh, utterly humiliated myself. This young man will never look to me again. Kimball felt horrible about the experience. Later that week, Dwight trusted Christ. And that 14-year-old kid grew up and became D.L. Moody, who preached the gospel all over America and Europe. Preached to millions of people. D.L. Moody was ministering one time in England, and there was a pastor named F.B. Meyer that was really frustrated with his life in ministry. And, and Moody went, and during the time, Moody was one of those guys they said he was the only guy that could pr pronounce Mesopotamia in four syllables, or I'm sorry, in two syllables. Should be four, he said it in two. Moody would have bad grammar. One lady came to D.L. Moody one time and, and she said, I, Moody, I counted 31 grammatical errors in your message. He just stuck his tongue out at her. He said, I'm using mine for God's glory. What are you using yours for? Moody preached, power of God, worked in F.B. Meyer's heart. F.B. Meyer began to mentor a young man named J. Wilbur Chapman. Counseled him, strengthened him, he served under F.B. Meyer. J. Wilbur Chapman then was used by God in a very national scale as an evangelist. About this time, there was a, a guy playing professional baseball that led the league in stolen bases one year. And at a YMCA meeting, 
He heard the gospel and he quit baseball, trusted Christ, and gave himself to ministry. His name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was mentored by J. Wilbur Chapman, who had been mentored by F.B. Meyer, whose heart had been moved and and strengthened through the preaching of D.L. Moody. Billy Sunday, in 1924, preached in Charlotte, North Carolina. And out of that meeting, a men's prayer group was formed. Billy may be up to something, right? A men's prayer group began to pray that God would move in the Charlotte region. And that this men's prayer group met for, for several years. October of 1934, this men's prayer group invited another evangelist named Mordecai Ham. I get there's a lot of names. Mordecai Ham came and preached. In late October, he sat down in his hotel room after having preached at this meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina, and basically wrote in his diary, the service, this isn't the exact words, but the, the thought, the, the service is, is dead. Lord, we need you to work. Lord, we, we, we need your spirit to fall tomorrow. Lord, we need, need another Pentecost. And leading up to those meetings, one man in this group of, of men that were praying said, Lord, raise someone up from Charlotte to preach the gospel across the world. Mordecai, I am writing in his journal, Lord, tomorrow night, send us a Pentecost. Lord, pour out your spirit. The next night he, he, he preaches and a 16 year old named Billy Graham responds to the gospel and is converted and saved. And during his life, Billy Graham preached the gospel to over a billion people because Mordecai Ham and men in Charlotte, North Carolina prayed because Billy Sunday was used by God to bring about that group of praying men. Because J. Wilbur Chapman poured into Billy Sunday's life. Because F.B. Meyer poured into J. Wilbur Chapman's life. Because God used D.L. Moody in F.B. Meyer's life. Because some no-name named Kimball walked into a shoe store and butchered a presentation of the gospel. See, y'all, when we partner with God, we see this much. And God sees a billion people Hearing the gospel. We, we, we see a shoe store and a sidewalk, and what difference could this make? And, and God sees the gospel announced publicly in places that it had never been announced before. And see, that's the beginning of this invitation. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, but pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest so he can send us out. He may send you down the street. He may send you across the nation. He may send you across the world. He may send you next door. See, that's the amazing thing about our God. We put ourselves in his hands, and guess what? He determines the end game. I, I, I want my life to be like that. I want my life and all my weakness and all my sin and all my obvious, just glaring dysfunction I want my life to have counted for eternity because I partnered with God. We just don't want our church to be somewhere we gather on Sunday, see you next week. You know what this, you know what would be incredible? I'm about to say something wild, but what, 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 if, what if sometimes in, in our gatherings we had, we had a little testimony? We ain't, Justin and I are not saying we're going to do that. I'm just, listen. What, what if Sunday in some ways became a celebration of what you saw God do during the week?
We had staff meeting got interrupted the other day because one of y'all busted in. He's like, he's like, man, my, my one got saved. We're like, what? He's like, who's your one? He's like, oh, wow. You remember when Justin preached on the one, right? And this dude's been praying for a guy for, for 18 months. And guess what? This past Sunday, his one got saved. And we're like, bro, we, we want staff meeting interrupted every week. Like, like, just take over if that's happening, right? That's what happens when we partner with God. We see what God could do and not what we could do on our own. So here's, here's the call this morning. Maybe not to something specific, but just in general, Lord, I pray and I see and I submit and you just, you just throw me where you want me. Some of you this morning, he's been, he's been doing something specific and you prayed about it and it becomes more and more and more clear. This morning, can you just surrender to that? Jesus Christ, son of God, I'll do it. I'll do it. Because it's your harvest. Some of us this morning need to move from see to join. Father, we thank you for scripture. Thank you for the word. Pray for my own life. Lord, there's areas where there's join, but there's areas where I've just been seeing. And God, in my own life, I want to transition to join. pray for people here this morning, God, that you have been stirring and working in their hearts. They would just, God, surrender to that, to your plans, to what you are working in our hearts. God, we do want to be a a group of people that see you at work in ways that we could never dream, ways that we could never do on our own. So Holy Spirit, speak to us, draw us, work in us. As we sit before the Lord, perhaps you this morning, you don't know Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. His blood was shed so you could know God. Justin and I, Ryan, Daniel, Paul, other people in this room would love to be able to, to share with you the truth of the gospel. Grab one of us. We'd, we'd love to share with you more. Believer, there may be something you need prayer for. Hit us up. Maybe something you need to bow right where you are and pray through. So Lord, take your word and apply it in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this. If you need to pray, you need to grab one of us, we're here for you. We love you. Let's respond to Jesus. Lead us, Daniel.